I'm Nick Harvey-Doyle, a Ngunnawan man from the northern tablelands of New South Wales. The Yarn podcast is made on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong people. We'd like to acknowledge First Nations people as the first storytellers. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn. I'm Thomas Phillips. Today, we're bringing you another episode of News Bites, a series of live interviews showcasing the work of local journalists. This week, we're joined by Matilda Bosley, the Guardian's TikTok queen whose videos often garner tens of thousands of views. We're also joined by Zara Siedler, the co-founder of Instagram-focused news service, The Daily Oz. It's one of the fastest growing news sites in Australia, with 430,000 followers and 37 million impressions a month. For News Bites, Matilda and Zara spoke to lecturer Sammy Shah about TikTok, Instagram, and the future of news. Sammy started by asking Zara why she decided to launch the Daily Oz back in 2017. None of our friends were consuming news in the way that we were, we being myself and my now business partner, co-founder Sam. And honestly, it was selfish. We wanted our friends to care about the news as much as we did. So we started an Instagram page. We thought that if all our mates were scrolling through Instagram, trying to connect with their peers and connect with their mates, why not put a bit of news in their way and try to capture what we thought was that more passive consumer. You, you said that you know, people were asking you about the news. Mm. So did this come out of a need that you, know, you saw no one else was doing this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at that point now, we just take it for granted that we see news on social media. At that point, five years ago, it was an afterthought for most traditional media. Uh, if you were put on the social media rounds, if you were asked to upload stories to Facebook, you were basically the lowest in the company. And so we wanted to privilege that and we wanted to bring that to the forefront because we knew that's how you got to young people. We knew we wanted to be speaking directly to them. And so we chose the platform that we thought they'd be on and that, you know, news would be most innocuous on at that point. And so from there, it's grown quite substantially through COVID. And here we are. Matilda, yours app of choice is TikTok. It it became the next one after Insta. Uh, When did you decide news needs to be on TikTok? It was an interesting one where I'd been on it for a while and kind of just lurking and I'd seen the um, Washington Post and they weren't doing so much straight reporting at that time, more as sort of like behind the news, newsroom stuff. And it kind of struck me that like, I, you know, everyone should be doing that. And again, I, I didn't, I was new in my position. I was kind of squeamish about it and didn't say it. And then eventually kind of was like, I'm just going to try and do it on my own account. And I sort of fumbled into a reasonable sort of structure that worked and it seemed to really resonate. And I think part of why I wanted to put it on TikTok as well is I was a victim of Tumblr back in the day, (laughs) you know, like the Tumblr era, like a bunch of teenagers on their computer with very strong opinions and then not necessarily facts. And I kind of was sort of thinking that there would have been a lot of value if there were mainstream places actually engaging with that audience on Tumblr because suddenly 
when COVID happened, this wasn't like, you know, the dancing app like we always hear. This was where like very serious conversations were happening, very political conversations. And I thought there would be some value having someone who is attached to a news organisation and therefore is accountable. Like if I say, you know, a terribly incorrect thing, I could lose my job. You need there to be stakes in telling the truth a little bit. So why not traditional news? I mean, both, both of you are working at the forefront of news in social media, in new technologies, really. Did either of you ever think, yeah, I want to be in the newspaper business or, or TV or radio, the old guard? I don't think that there's, you know, the death of absolute old guard media or anything like that. But I think you need to understand how people use the internet. We have this news landscape that's based around like a decentralized internet like there was in like 1995 where you know you want the news so you go specifically to this website to do it and I think that's a lot of what people have struggled with is that there's four websites now basically and you have to make sure your stuff is on that website and more so you have to make sure you are reducing the amount of effort that people have to click on it like Instagram you're scrolling through your feed you read it it's easy TikTok it literally no click barrier as you're scrolling and things like that so that really appealed to me where it's this idea that there's less of a fight to just get people in the door and you're not just having to like have that absolute like flashy headline you know you've got people's attention for you know for being generous like maybe 10 seconds that's a that's a lot more time than you can have in one sentence of a headline to like actually start talking about them and like actually hook them in and that's honestly where a lot of the value in social media journalism comes from you're not asking people a big ask and I, clicking is a big ask nowadays with the way that our internet works with Instagram and all these things, there is that uh, the element where it's short news. But mm. you've now got podcasts, you've now mm. got newsletters. Are people engaging longer? How did you get them to go from that, that quick burst to a commitment to news? We started a newsletter because a week after I quit my full-time job to do the Daily Oz full-time, Facebook took news off its platform. Oh, I freaked out and launched a newsletter. Mm. That newsletter is the newsletter we have today. So, I mean, I'd like to say that it was this grand philosophy of consumption habits and that, but it actually was necessity and we just raised capital and I was worried they were going to pull it. But now that I can look backwards and assign it, it goes to the idea of allowing for that accessibility. So I, for one, don't listen to podcasts. It's not the way that I learn. I don't like to listen to my information. I like to read it. My best mate has never looked at my Instagram page in the however many years we've been friends because that's not how she consumes information. Mm -hmm. She loves the podcast. So it was about building out how we could reach more people, how we could reach new audiences, uh, and then how we could bring them down the funnel, which is what we like to say in our team, which is that we see social media as kind of the front door to the Daily Oz mm -hmm. ecosystem. It's a rented audience. We don't take it for granted. It's not an owned audience. So, you know, Facebook takes news off, gone, done. We recognise that risk. And so bringing together different ways of connecting brings people down into that more owned audience space for us. And that's an interesting thing because with TikTok, for example, you know, you still have The Guardian website and Instagram there. But, you know, what if these apps go away tomorrow? What if mm. right now TikTok's still big, but what if someone comes up with Glomper or whatever the next app is, and that devastates this landscape. How wedded is your media output to the social media app? So currently, I cro we cross post my videos. So put on Instagram, uh, Instagram Reels, YouTube Shorts. 
Facebook. I'm not sure who's watching them on Facebook, to be honest. But they're made with the idea for them to be able to be cross-posted because there is a certain amount of people who go on TikTok and it's just not for them. Mm -hmm. And they want to stay on Instagram. I think it's interesting the same video can have very, very different reactions on different sites. So honestly, Instagram's meaner is what I'm getting at. Um, (laughs) But because you have that older audience, I think people are less tolerant perhaps of the style of, you know, you're talking fast, you're getting a lot of information in, you're, you know, bam, 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 bam. Because it's not an audience who is used to that one minute or one minute 30 video. So I make them with TikTok in mind first, but, you know, TikTok is so changeable and wishy-washy and you can use the wrong word and the third sentence from the end and no one will see it and, you know, it'll get, you know, millions of views on on Instagram instead. So it's portable in that way. But, yeah, I think that is definitely the aspect that you need to constantly be looking out for what's about to happen. And, you know, uh, where we're talking about, like, suddenly people are taking social media seriously. Suddenly the people who are putting the stories on Facebook are high up and important people but it's okay we're like we've managed to get that while facebook's on its death door you know like and we've got a good run of instagram left but like you know nothing's going to be forever so i think i don't know just not being six years behind makes you kind of a pretty good place when it comes to you know media it's a slow moving beast really I want to play uh, a big clip of uh, matilda's work this is uh, the most recent one posted to tiktok The New South Wales state election is this Saturday, so give me 60 seconds to get you up to speed. New South Wales is one of only two coalition state governments left, and the Liberal Premier Dominic Perrottet is fighting to keep his job against Labor challenger Chris Minns. The main issues on the table are gambling reform, housing, cost of living and wages. But our New South Wales political reporter tells me that... Honestly, these three leaders and their key policies are pretty similar, but what's super interesting is the crossbench. There are already a bunch of minor parties and independents in the New South Wales Parliament, and even more are running this time round, including five teal independents who you'll remember caused the Liberals a lot of pain back in the federal vote. So a hung parliament where neither major party wins the majority of seats, in this case 47, might actually be a fairly likely outcome. In this scenario the Greens have already ruled out working with the coalition and they've got a list of key demands for Labor, but that may still not be enough. So the state's fate may rest with the other independents that are elected. Which means every vote is extremely important. Oh and pre-polling is already open if you just can't wait. So How many people does it take to make one of those? The social team will do a lot of the cross-posting for me, but I'll write the scripts, film it, edit it, get it up on TikTok. Yeah, anywhere between like two and 27 hours, you know. Um, No, usually it's about kind of a six-hour turnaround, which sounds like a lot and is a lot and causes me pain uh, when I see how short the end product is sometimes. But, yeah, that video was all me in terms of editing and then, yeah, But I think also that's kind of one of the things I tell young journalists a lot of the time, which is like the best thing you can do for your career is to just like be cheap. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 not a product that's requiring a team of five different people. It's not something with a, you know, three days for each video. It's something that I like clearly from that video, like audio editing. It's not like I'm a professional at that or anything like that. But also it doesn't need to be for social media. Like that's probably one of the slicker looking videos I've made. So I didn't need it to be super professional. I didn't need to. It's filmed on my phone. I don't even have a mic because they were too annoying to use. But that's the medium. Well, even with the daily odds, mm. you know, it, when it started with just two people, mm. as you and your, your business partner doing this, how long before you realised you need more hands and also why? 
Well, we did it every single day for four years, the two Just of us, it, right. before and after work. Uh, he was an M&A lawyer working till like 4 a.m. I was a lobbyist. I needed money, sorry. We did it every day. There was no plan to make it a business. I think mm -hmm. that's what the most important thing is that like I thought it would be a passion project start to finish. I never expected it to become a job that would let alone pay me. Like it's just the absolute privilege of a lifetime to do your passion and get paid for it. So the idea of hiring people only came when we had the financial security to do so. And that was when we raised capital. And I think people often glorify the startup hustle and bootstrap and don't do this and don't do that. And I think that's bullshit because if you can't pay rent, you can't feed yourself, there's no way you can invest in a business and in building a team and whatever else. So I only quit the jobs when we got financial backing and then uh, hired someone soon after that to help us with the editorial load of what we were seeking to do. And then shortly after that, we brought on someone who would lead our commercial arm, which didn't exist because we had no idea how to make money. And now we do. Well, I mean, it looks slick. Well, it's one of the first things that, you know, um, that stood out about it was the daily always had a certain look, it had mm. a certain font color, mm. a you know, font choice, a color, it had a brand identity. How aware were you of these things when you started this and, and, and how much of them became a necessity later to make it into a financial enterprise? It was always incredibly important. We wanted to remove all the barriers to all those people that said that they weren't news people. So the first one was news is too negative. Mm. We're like, great, we're going to put a good news story on the fifth story of every single bulletin. Uh, and we've done that every day for five years. And it's so hard to find a good news story yeah. every day. They don't exist. Yeah. So that was the first barrier. And then it was that, oh, you know, I don't want to read reams and reams of information. I want it packaged nicely. Mm. Excellent. We will give you some bright colours. We'll give you some Canva, you know, 3.0. And that removed the second barrier. They weren't looking at, you know, the Oz and, and reading through streams and streams of information. They were getting what they needed in a way that was attractive and didn't stand out and didn't make them feel, you know, alienated from what they were trying to engage with. Uh, so it has remained very important to us this whole time. I mean, when we look at the videos, we interviewed the Premier and the Opposition Leader this week. Um, You've interviewed the Prime Minister and the Opposition Leader both. Yeah, so we did that. It's all been within a month. Prime Minister, Opposition Leader, New South Wales Premier, New South Wales Opposition Leader. And they, it's always really fun because they think we're just children who are going to ask them about children things. And then they walk away and like, oh, God, <laughs> someone could have prepped me for that. And so making sure that we look like a professional outfit and that we have the capacity to create an end product that reflects how we go about things, which is with that kind of professional posture, I think is very important to how we come across and how we want to be perceived. Oh, I was going to say that's interesting in terms of that tactic of looking like when mine kind of vibe is like, I kind of want people to think that it's just like, I'm a friend in my, yeah. in my bedroom, literally for the first two years of doing it. The difference for mm. us was that no one ever took us seriously. Oh, and so yeah. where, yeah. where there's the Guardian backing and beast of, you know, legitimacy, Youth media in this country uh, has, I'd argue, rightfully earned a reputation of not approaching hard news in a balanced way and in a respectful way. And so we wanted to challenge that. But when you say you're a youth news publisher, everybody thinks of other youth news publishers that swear every two seconds or do this or do that. Uh, and so I think that Matilda's right, look, that polish idea comes with us also wanting to seek legitimacy so that we can experiment, we can do mm. other things. 
how does the old guard take this? How mm. do the established old journalists take TikTok on Guardian? I mean, I've been extremely lucky with the Guardian because I think it was this very unique position where it's this absolute like old guard mainstay, like used to be written in the cursive font when that was not just a style choice. That was how people <laughs> wrote. But it's this kind of little off branch or right. across the sea and it's just the website. We don't have this a paper sucking up most of the funds. So it was this kind of old guard legitimacy and experience but with the kind of ability to just experiment a little bit and do things and I think that was honestly why it was received so well but look I think definitely at first there was real apprehension and there was a lot of people not from the Guardian but from the wider journalism world sort of being like aren't you afraid you're going to kind of destroy your credibility or like you're going to be seen as like the so a social media person or you know like that's the kind of worst thing you could be so you get like a bit of those attitudes but I think what's been really nice is is seeing that shift and seeing people actually start to take this really seriously and seeing the power that you know TikTok but just sort of like short form video in general if you're using it sensibly that like the punch that it can pack and like the amount of information you can pack into it like even in that video where I talk about like oh a hung parliament and then I spend a sentence explaining what a hung mm. parliament is and I think that a lot of the political reporting and a lot of the other reporting you see just around doesn't really do that first step mm. and you need that first step in social media so that's kind of what I've been really glad to see the push towards social media I think has forced the old guard to become more accessible to young people what about you how's the reaction been from you know the more established old media well, the first budget lockup that the Daily Oz went into, a very senior person at an undisclosed mouse head said, oh, it's the little TikTokers. <laughs> at that point, we didn't even have a TikTok, which is so <laughs> shit. And I think that for the first couple of years, that was the sentiment. They didn't understand it. They didn't see us as a threat. Mm-hmm. I do think that that has started to shift in the last year in that we are capturing audiences that they are continuing to struggle to capture. Yes. And, I mean, we have no relationships with any traditional media. We don't engage with them at all. We kind of just do our thing, let them do their thing. We don't see the Daily Oz. We always say it's the entree to the news diet. So we don't want someone to start and finish their news journey. We're just trying to get more people to start their journey with us. Matilda was spot on. One thing that's really important to us is providing that kind of explanatory journalism, because I think a very big problem is that there is so much assumed knowledge. If you open a piece about The Voice referendum coming up and you don't know what a referendum is or how it passes, it's going to make it really difficult to engage. Um, What's been the biggest surprise when it comes to audiences and audience reaction for you? I mean, it's not a surprise, but I just think it counters what everyone else says, which is that our audiences engage so critically with the content that we produce. And there is like really robust conversation, just even in the comment section. If we're interviewing a politician and we ask for questions, we will get thousands of questions around like really specific policy. And so for me, I mean, it's not surprising. It's just really reaffirming to know that the next generation of voters care a lot. They are engaging. They now have outlets Uh, that they can engage with really meaningfully. And so I think it's been surprising for others in the industry, but it's just been excellent for our demographic to really show their their strengths. What about you? Any surprises? I think 
the way that it changed my view of journalism and my thought process a lot, having that very direct feedback that you have that you don't really have sort of like the comments at the bottom of an article, like to a certain degree, like I'm quite scared every time I put a video out, but like that's kind of good. You want your journalists to have that level of accountability. So, yeah, the way that people will engage with it. But also I think one thing that I wasn't expecting with doing the TikToks is that the relationship that the audience has to you as a creator, which it's it's annoying that, like, I even hesitate to, like, say creator, you know, because there's a sort of stigma against it in the mainstream media world. But, like, as a creator, people want to come and see someone that they feel they know explain the news and there's a certain level of trust there. And they'll come back and I think, you know, that's often what people struggle with when they start up the TikTok accounts is that if the people don't recognise the face, so you just keep scrolling on. So that's been an interesting aspect for me being like, we always talk about like build the relationship and the trust with the readership. But like this is so much more direct in terms of trust. And especially when you're talking about to, you know, journalists who mm. used to be like, oh, I might get a letter to the editor. It's like <laughs> right, I yeah. will get like 400 DMs <laughs> like immediately if I do something like well, that. So you're going to do it. Yeah. I should ask both of you about that because uh, one of the things, so I, it happens a lot whenever, whenever I'm invited to be on a panel, people are like as a brown person, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and after a while you're like, I, I just like to talk about the journalism. And I had not intended to ask either of you what it is to be a woman in journalism. But this is the question that all my students, whenever I said, when I asked them, what questions would you like me to ask? Or most of my students are, are women studying to be journalism. They all want to know how hard is it to be a face, a public face on TikTok, for example, in your case, to have that brand and to be out there you know, mm. talking about this all the time. What are the reactions like? It's not so bad that I would have you know ever warn women against doing it there's definitely been a few annoying comments and you know there's a few like oh if you wear a shirt that's too tight there'll be you know but it's mostly actually the older platforms like when I post it onto Twitter and stuff like that that I get older generations the younger people who are watching the videos really are not very judgy on that side of things I think there is I mean I think that I receive a lot of very valid criticism and I I try and very much take that on board and use that to inform my journalism there is also a subset of criticism that is just people who are angry about a young woman who's not wearing a business suit Mm talking to them about anything with any level of authority and it's taken me a while to sort of accept that there are some comments that you just have to write off as that but you know there's you know discussions there's even been discussions on radio about whether it's appropriate for me to be wearing bright eye makeup which is just kind of like oh you just have to let that you know that's just frustrating and it's really annoying I was about to say you just have to let that go you shouldn't let that go that's really annoying but I'd say 90% of the feedback I get is genuinely people who are really engaged in the news and want their news organisations to be better, uh, you know, if they're upset with something I've done and and sometimes it's legitimate and you take it on. But it's definitely present, but it's not been the majority of my experience and I think I've been very lucky in that way and I think that comes from having a slightly younger demographic as well. What about you? Everything she said. I think having a male co-founder is fascinating because we can judge our experiences again, right. like, very immediately. And even, you know, what we both get invited to do and where we speak and how it is, you know, picked up and whatever else. And aside from a really mean article that was written about me recently, um, I think that for the most part I've been really lucky. I don't know if it's because of having a male co-founder or or not, but it is for the most part a genuinely thrilling experience and I hope for more young women to come through the ranks. I'd also say 
from the perspective of working within a company, the Guardian has been good about this. Again, I've been lucky, but like it very much is your company's job to protect you. And mm. I think we're really, especially with the new age of people, you know, being present and and it not just being an anonymous byline and there being that very direct result, I think companies are really starting to take on the need for Definitely. actually protecting their reporters. So, you know, you can and should be advocating for people to be like, if a video is bad, I, you know, if there's nasty comments, I just pass that off. I'm like, someone else mm -hmm. is dealing That's with this. That's a great point. That's something yeah. that us as employers, I mean, we've got staff that are 18, 19 and have their faces on the internet and mm -hmm. receive very cruel feedback on a regular basis. And so we're working through how we can develop a policy that best uh, looks after their well-being in an environment where a normal 18 or 19 year old doesn't have a million people, you know, dissecting their every move um, and anything that comes out of their mouth. And I think that we didn't anticipate how tough that would be and creating a policy framework around that to protect that those mm -hmm. staff members is a unique proposition for a first time business owner and hopefully last time. And so that's something we're working through at the moment. Mm. Especially when you come from an industry that's meant to be like toughen up, mm. get it done. I think mm. it's yeah. a good movement that we're coming to understand. They're like, mm, it hurts my feelings and that's valid actually. How do you decide what stories get the format, the treatment that you're giving? You know, For example, <clears throat> the other one that you posted very recently was about the fish dying in the river, in the Murray River. And, and how do you make that decision? Hey, this is a story that's perfect for TikTok. Do you, do you ever get wrong? Uh, yeah, I think definitely. I've gotten halfway through a day before and been like, oh, this is dreary. Um, <laughs> or just a bit more complicated than I thought it was going to be. And that's when you have to start getting really creative. I mean, with um, the fish video, actually, halfway through, I realized I'm like, I don't have anything to visualize half of the things I'm saying. So I got on Canva and made like a little fish river. I am very much like kind of against the very TV creative like it is vision, vision, vision. It has to have vision because I think that um, is how you uh, corrupt democracy. But I admit that you do have to have vision occasionally. Right. So sometimes there's that consideration. Sometimes Australia's extremely strict libel and defamation laws make mm. things just you're not going to be able to get all the detail that you need in to even protect yourself within mm -hmm. a minute 30, let alone tell the story fully properly. And then sometimes breaking breaking news doesn't tend to be what does well yeah. at least for me on tiktok because there is a long lead time it's video it's non-chronological yeah yes exactly people might be seeing your video in a month's time so where i've tried to pick it is like what's a news story where there's like some complicated bit that people don't quite understand or like okay but like what does oxygen depletion in water mean for mm. for the fish kill and have my tiktok be like that kind of like missing piece so that people can engage in other news stories more on GDO's website, there's a, there's an explanation of your editorial policy, yeah. like how you decide the stories, how you vet them, and everything like that. Was why was that needed, and 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 what how you know how did you go about that? It goes to the authority point. It's that if you are a new player, that nobody knows who you are, what you stand for, who's paying your bills. How can you forge trust with an audience on that basis? And so, our editorial charter is very important to us and our editor is an incredible incredible professional who upholds that every single day and we don't always get it right but central to what we do is radical transparency if we get it wrong we will acknowledge we've gotten it wrong but to the point of choosing stories something that guides us is news not noise we don't want more noise there is so much information for us that means we don't do 
pop culture, though it's not noise, love it, just not for us. We don't do op-eds. We don't do a whole lot that we think our forte is focusing on just the cold hard facts and then you go out and you find the rest of it when you have that foundation on which to kind of base your views and, and base your opinions. So, you know, we were talking about a story today and I was texting the editor and I was like, I, I just think this is noise. It's, it was just before an election. It was very clearly a drop from the other party and it's not a material policy factor that should change a voter's intentions. That was Matilda Bosley and Zara Siedler talking to lecturer Sammy Shah. The yarn is from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. It's produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. A massive thank you to Matilda, Zara and Sammy. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. I'm Thomas Phillips. See you next week.